This is Ushers to Ashes, a podcast about the other 80s. Comedians like Rick Mayle, Alexi Sale, Dawn French and Jennifer Saunders were an integral part of alternative culture in the 1980s. And in many ways these figures were as innovative and iconoclastic as their cousins in the post-punk music scene. In this episode we revisit The Young Ones, arguably the most exemplary televisual manifestation of the anarchic ethos of the alt-80s zeitgeist. What are your memories of the young ones? That it was a lot, a lot of it was word of mouth. Because we got it a little later. I mean, we got it all at once from Britain. When it was made in Britain uh, in two series that were quite like the, 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 the year between them. But we got all of those, well, all of the episodes at the same time. Late 84, I'm thinking, uh, or 85. And I heard about it at a party and people just started watching it. Um, first episode I remember clearly was Boring, which is in the first season. Um, and it was on before Rock Arena. And Rock Arena was like, uh, if, if Countdown was like F- AM radio, Rock Arena was like, you know, the, the best hour of uh, subscriber FM student you know, radio ever heard on TV. So if you were inclined to watch Rock Arena, you were pretty much a cinch to be to enjoy uh, the young ones. So you'd, if you had that pointed out to you, you'd make, that would be the routine. So you'd watch the young ones and then there'd be Rock Arena, um, which went together really beautifully. And the reason I'm pointing that out is that those two things were a bit like, uh, Choosing the right magazine to read, or listening to the the, the right shows on your favourite you know FM station, they were de rigueur. They were things that you affected as part of being an alt dot person in um, in the early dot eighties. Right. So um, we were the young ones. Yeah. The, uh, to some extent, and just uh, in terms of the setup of the show, that the show examines the uh, adventures or misadventures of four young people living in a share house. Um, Just very quickly, what's your memory of the characters? There was a game that people would play on, you know, which young one are you? Because everyone who knew everyone else uh, in that particular time were, you know, were students and um, were living in share houses. And so, Someone became the Mike, someone became the Neil, someone became the Rick, someone became the Vivian. I was always the Rick because I was the, the bourgeois Bolshevik, um, you know, not with the badges so much, but with the kind of lexicon that he come up with. But the, I think the, 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 the construction of the character relations is pretty standard for comedy. It was just that it was pushed a little into the hot zone. So you get the a, a kind of like the, like Rick, and Rick's counterpoint, uh, Rick's all, you know, slogans and um, anarchy and all that kind of thing. And his opposite is the Thatcherite uh, Mike, who seems to be a um, probably a business studies student, never quite certain, but he's always looking for a buck. And he, he even says he votes Tory in one episode. Um, and if you think of those as two one continuum from one part of the spectrum to the opposite part. You've got a cross section there where this agent of chaos, which is Vivian, who looks like a punk because that was the easiest thing to shoehorn that sort of Harpo Marx chaos into. 
And at the opposite end of his spectrum is Neil the hippie, who, who would love to be this agent of, of cosmic peace and love. But he, like all the other ones, apart from Mike, is a miserable failure at anything but this kind of knockabout version of it, or just uh, an absurd, ridiculous version of it. How about you? What? Yeah, I really enjoyed the show. It resonated with me for all sorts of reasons, primarily because I lived in share houses mm. in my 20s, yeah. and there were certainly anarchic, surreal experiences that I gained from living in uh, those sorts of circumstances. The other thing that I really related to was the fact that these were students mm -hmm. and kind of lazy layabout <laughs> students. I mean, <laughs> from um, Scumbag College. From Scumbag College. <laughs> and there's an episode where they uh, go on to University, University Challenge <laughs> with the Oxbridge mob, and which is hilarious. And, and, you, and I think that's another reason I related to the young ones. Welcome to another edition of University Challenge. This week, the teams represent Footlights College, Oxbridge. Yes, that's the spirit. And Scumbag College. Oh, aye. Up, scumbag. Up, scumbag. See you, Teddy Bear. Come here. Yes, well, representing, representing Footlights, we have Lord Monte, Lord Snot, Miss Money Sterling, and Mr. Kendall Mintkick. Hi. And representing Scumbag, we have Mike, Prick, um, Vivian, and Neil. Vegetable rights and peas. So you'll start at 10, no confirm. Born in 1311 of Manchurian stock, he came to... Scumbag Neil. Uh, can I go to the toilet? <laughs> I think one of the interesting things about being a university student in the 1980s was that university education was no longer the preserve of the rich. Mm -hmm. That particularly in Australia, it were, firstly, it was free, yeah. which meant that it was accessible to people like me. So I suspect I probably went to something, to a university that was similar to Scumbag College. Mm -hmm. It wasn't, you know, the elite flagship uh, institution. Okay. So that studenty thing was really uh, something I could relate to. And I really loved the character of uh, Rick, played by Rick Mayle. Mm -hmm. um, the badges, the fact that he would get really excited whenever he smelt a whiff of revolution or radical he, change. He believed in what he was saying. He wasn't just this person who was, uh, fly, uh, flew a red flag because it was fashionable, whatever. He seemed to genuinely believe in the politics. How effective he would have been when confronted with the realities of the, the confrontation is another question. Of course. <laughs> and one of the things I loved about him was that, like Rick, I had a lot of enthusiasm uh -huh. for radical politics. Going to university really was a heady experience. Mm -hmm. We as students were intru introduced to challenging ideas, radical ideas that made you question almost every aspect of your identity. Mm -hmm. And what you have in Rick is a figure that like satirizes all of those things. His yes. excitement is, uh, it, it quickly dissipates when he's actually confronted with the reality yeah. of being, well, you with know. with cops, with cops, isn't yeah. it? In the, the party thing, it's like even that's right. thumbs up when they're there. Yeah, he, like, he puts on, that's a great episode, isn't it? Like where he puts on human leads right. at a very low volume and yeah. the cops like. Straight away. Yeah, straight away they're in and they beat the shit <laughs> out of they, him. They trunch on the stereo. That's right. And a few objects around the house. <laughs> and he's just so deferential. Okay, pop music, let's go. Neighbours have been complaining. You just watch your steps, Sonny. Heads, right? Heavy. Fascists. Yeah. I'd really like to join the police. Almost every uh, student household in Brisbane 
that uh, suffered such ignominy. I'm, uh, I'm making a little too light of that, but is it recognisable? Absolutely recognisable. And of course, he was ludicrous in many ways. Mm. He saw himself as the people's poet. Yeah. So the the level of pretension in the character was just fantastic. Well, you you know, remember the dream he has where, um, and because he's still only about 19 or something like that, because he's a university student, the dream where there's a trial and Vivian's, of course, the grand prosecutor. He's an utter bastard. <laughs> and um, it, it, it's, it's all going wrong because it's a nightmare and, and Rick's in the dark and he's about to be um, sent off you know, for life or something. I, I didn't watch that episode recently. But all these, these women in the galleries are... Uh, just like um, calling out to you know to free him because he's a cause celebrity, and, and he, you cut to him waking up with a, a handkerchief suspiciously placed underneath the chair. <laughs> so he can't quite. He's, he's still a nineteen-year-old. He's not. He, he still knows he doesn't quite meet that ideal. But yeah, in in his dreams and in his nightmares and his his fantasies, he's right up there. Uh, there are just some fantastic moments, like when he's squeezing zits, and then he's inspired. To to uh, wax lyrical mm. in Ex his tempore, yes, uh, incredible. Pollution. <laughs> yeah, um, I also really enjoyed the um, frenetic pace of the mm. show. It was a real contrast to, I think, uh, what had come before. Mm -hmm. You know, the hippie character Neil, who's always the butt of everyone's yes. uh, jokes, and he, he's incredibly passive and. Um, there's a sense in which what the show did was it positioned itself very much against the generation that had come before ours. That's evident, I think, in the uh, relationships between the characters. But mm -hmm. the very form of the show, I think, also is a, a stark contrast to what was sort of screened on mainstream TV at the mm -hmm. time. Um, you put me onto a short uh, video clip mm -hmm. uh, which glosses the history of the show. And one of the things I think um, that Ben Elton, one of the writers, one of the points that Ben Elton makes is that the young ones were very much against the old farts, the, yeah. the sort of bourgeois comedy that was represented by shows like The Good Life. Yeah, exactly. Did you see The Good Life? Did you yeah, I used to like it. I, I, I enjoyed it. It was a, it was a, a witty... Um, comedy of opposites, like that's a perfect situation comedy. Hey, high concept, you know, we put this um, middle class couple who are like starting from scratch, you know, seeing if they can be like urban and bucolic at the same time, next to this upper crust middle class couple who are disgusted by everything they do. You know, there's um, so Felicity Kendall on one side and Penelope Keith on the other and there's Richard Bryars and Peter Bond, um, and there's genuine fun to be had out of that, but The Good Life, which they fairly mercilessly um, dig at in The Young Ones, is one of the, the, the less offensive ones, one, one of the ones that would probably still stand up now as an enjoyable, pleasant, the English are so nice type comedy. Did you know that the Serenum Toad has got a pointed head? What brought that up? Dunno. Makes you think of things like that, cobbling. <laughs> oh. Has he really? Got a pointed head. Huh? This toad. Yeah. I read that in my boy's book of knowledge. When? When I was a boy. <laughs> It's like when and Rick has a big Barney with uh, with Vivian about it because uh, Vivian had oh Vivian starts by with his meltdown about how how dare they suggest that the English are all nice people like this and then he he makes a mistake of mentioning Felicity Candle and then that sets Rick off and he has his own you know explosion. You know, I've got a ruddy good mind to give you a ruddy good punch on the bottom. And then even the police say, I won't have you saying anything. <laughs> yes. Well, that's another great thing about Rick, isn't it? That his tastes... Cliff are... Richard. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so he loves Cliff Richard. He loves Felicity Kendall. And they're not the most radical uh, well, no, right-on figures. Where, but that's where he comes from. Exactly. You know, he, he's, he's from uh, uh, like a really obviously middle-class 
background and he hasn't quite adjusted. He, he is excited by the politics like you're talking, but we all were. And then at the same time, he, he can't change his spots. You know, and it's it's Clive Richard. You know? <laughs> it's not even the Basie Rollers or. Well, I think in the end of the very last episode, um, they, uh, what what was the Cliff Richard song? Um, oh, summer holiday. Summer holiday. <laughs> and they're on a bus, and they literally go off a cliff. Well, um, he, he yells out "cliff" <laughs> because Vivian's not looking where he's driving, and it goes through a poster, like a billboard of Cliff Richard. So it's like "cliff, cliff." It's a great pun. Yeah, and the, the way it ends, which we won't spoil if anyone yeah. wants to catch up. But yes, yeah, like quite literally. Uh, <clears throat> but to get back to the issue mm. of what came before and what marked the young mm. ones as being distinctive yeah. and marking some kind of break from what came before, yeah. was um, in my memory, I just remember British comedies like Love Thy Neighbour, mm. Mind Your Language, and before that in the 1960s, Curry and Chips, these incredibly racist. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, racist. Uh, racist where you were meant to be laughing with the people who I mean there's, there's comeuppances and things like that but generally yeah. they're, they're kind of getting away with it as, uh, and things like Alf Garner yeah. you, you remember that well I loved Till Death Do Us Part if the truth be known I liked all of those shows mm-hmm. you know even though they made me cringe and you know being subcontinental in England I grew up in England uh, up until about the age of uh, 12 or 13 yeah. On one level, I was horrified because mm-hmm. I knew that when I was at school, the sorts of language that was used on those shows would be used against me and, it would, they, and uh, I would be tormented by, you know, um, the attitudes mm-hmm. that were normalized on those shows. But I still found it funny. Mm-hmm. And I used to love, I loved things like Love Thy Neighbor. My father loved Love Thy Neighbor. Hey, while you were ill this afternoon, did you get your ticket? No, I didn't. <laughs> what a Thank pity. You. And they're playing your team, aren't they, Manchester United? Yeah, you can't get tickets, Jack. You can't get tickets for love nor money. I got a ticket, you know. You see, they're a big draw in London. Yeah. <laughs> I said I got a ticket. Well, that's racial discrimination. <laughs> then what are you on about now? That Sambo in the ticket office told me they were sold out. I bet he's got a stack underneath the counter just waiting for you lot. <laughs> Heard of the black market, but this is ridiculous. <laughs> steady on, man. I applied weeks ago, you know. It's marvellous, isn't it, eh? Yeah. They're not content coming over here, taking our jobs, our houses, our women. Now they want our bloody football tickets as well. <laughs> well what's wrong with that? I have as much right as you, you know. How can you have? I'm white. Ah, but they all come from the British Empire. Knickers. <laughs> the Empire's finished, doesn't exist anymore. Yes, but I was born a British citizen. And what do you think I was born, a bloody Martian? What those shows did was, uh, on one level, they kind of like normalised, as you say, uh, not just a casual racism, but a deep, deeply ingrained form of racism. Mm-hmm. And this was sort of seen as not really admissible because quite often, if you were looking at the shows carefully, um, you know, the character, the the shop steward character in Love Thy Neighbour was ludicrous. Mm-hmm. And most of the humour was at his expense. Yeah. You know, he would constantly use terms like um, wog, nignog, etc, etc, etc. And he was made out to be somewhat of a fool. But at the same time, he was an endearing fool. Mm-hmm. And, you know, but as a kid, I didn't get any of those subtleties. I wasn't reading it in, in that way at all. But it is interesting to go back and have a look at those shows and yeah. just see how prevalent that line uh, runs. You know, the, the shows do constantly talk about race because it was a topical thing. Britain was coming to terms with being a multicultural yeah. society. Mm-hmm. There was the rise of the right wing. This is yeah. sort of just before National Thatcher Front. comes. Yeah. yeah, the National Front, skinheads, all of that kind of stuff. So early 80s, the young ones come along mm-hmm. and they're doing a form of humour that I wouldn't say we've never seen before, but it is distinctive insofar as it, it doesn't conform to the... Well, it challenges those things. Absolutely. You get very, not just the good life thing, but you get very sudden. There's, there's a, a the, the one, I think it's boring, the, the third episode of the first series, where they run the TV and um, Rick wants to watch, again, this is very middle, they invent one. Um, his favourite sitcom is a thing called Oh Crikey. And they, there's this instant, perfect kind of uh, comedy of errors going on, sort of um, that looks like every sitcom that ever happened in, in Britain in the 
in the 70s. And they all end by, you know, by uh, forming themselves and posing like a photograph, all the characters on the TV saying, oh, crikey, in turn. And that's when the, you get the credits. This is beautiful. I'm not describing it very well, but the, it's this perfect encapsulation of everything that they were fighting against. And of course, it's Rick's favorite show. <laughs> that's the one that gets interrupted by the siege, um, news footage and the siege. And that gets into the BBC reporter's uh, own racism at the end of it. There's a, there's a real nasty little zing right at the end of that. Um, <clears throat> and of course, the, uh, that when they all complain about how, well, with the siege thing, you'll see the same angle of one thing for four hours. But the siege actually happens in their own house behind them, which they don't quite understand. And someone brings in a little artillery piece to, to blow this terrorist to smithereens. And, uh. But yeah, absolutely, uh, that sensibility in that UK culture, at least, that so much was being, well, perhaps examined by things like Love Thy Neighbour, but done in such a way as the dilution would still appeal to a mass audience because you couldn't control who was going to watch. And they were, the ones you were talking about are successful shows. But, I mean, Spike Milligan was still doing, like, weird sort of funny Indian voices on his. Absolutely. Peter Sellers made a career out of it. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, to, you know, to be fair to him, his, uh, his heights were, were, were celestial, but he... That does not age very well. You know, it doesn't. Of... And in fact, uh, I saw The Millionaires not long ago, mm. which is the film he made with Sophia Loren, where he does, uh, you know, put on brown face mm -hmm. and he's an Indian doctor. It's an appalling film. Um, Sophia Loren's stunning beauty notwithstanding, yeah. Yeah, but yeah. it's really, really poor. Um, well, thank God he went out on being there. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> well, it, you know, interestingly, though, Peter Sellers was part of the goons. And yeah. one of the continuities, I think, between British humour um, in the 50s and 60s and the young ones was this element of surrealism. Mm. And the goons so was yeah. certainly into an absurdist kind of humour. And I guess, to some extent, the young ones were our generation's goons, you know. Mm. Like, and Monty Python, yeah. Yeah. Well, they were big fans of Monty Python, too. Mm. Um, yeah. Weirdly, though, I think... The young ones also reminded me of the monkeys. It was, course, you know, a yeah. similar setup. Four young men sharing a house, um, but a, a British and grubbier version. <laughs> Definitely a much grubbier. And, and, and you get a, an action sequence with a band from the time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that was another thing about the form of the show. Um, and actually, before we go and uh, go into that and talk about mm -hmm. that. Uh, maybe we should say something about where these people came from and who they were, the writers. Okay. And uh, So what do you know about um, the people responsible for the show? Okay, well, the, the, the central, this is kind of like a trio at the centre, um, one of whom didn't really appear on screen, and that's Lisa Mayer, who was the girlfriend of Rick Mayer. They, were, they worked on what became The Young Ones um, together. But Rick Mayer was with Adrian Edmondson, like a, a comedy duo. And I don't know much about the venues or the uh, festivals or whatever th their level of fame was, but they were pretty much uh, well-known enough to make this kind of application. Um, almost called him Neil. Nigel Planer um, was also in the same kind of scene, that sort of rising new wave of comedy which is very uh, similar to the musical one, where all of these things were being challenged and criticised uh, in the mainstream. Um, and that leads pretty uh, solidly to what became The Young Ones. The only person who wasn't part of that, who was an actor, was Mike, which is interesting, isn't it? Because uh, all the other actors... All the, yeah, all the other actors, all the other characters, all the other performances are really over the top, and Mike's isn't. And he's kind of the control character in a way. We, we should spend a bit of discussion on him at a different point. But I've left a few gaps there which you might be able to fill. Yeah, I mean, from what I understand, they were part of a live comedy scene mm. um, centred, I think, on a place called the Comedy Store oh, okay, in London. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, 
And there was a forerunner to the young ones. There's, uh, and I had forgotten that I was a fan of this comic show, strip? the comic strip, yeah. which was hilarious. And one yeah. of the episodes that I remember really well is like I think something like Famous Five Go Mad and Dorset, Lashings right? of Ginger Beer. When, Absolutely. And we saw that everyone was saying that, <laughs> right? Because I had read, presumably you'd Enid read Blythe, Enid Blyton yeah. too, yeah. and my God, talk about racism and um, oh, yeah, yeah. just the you know those nasty foreign. Jerry's, you know. <laughs> Because uh, I think Blyton was writing, what, in the 40s and 50s? Mm. That's the height of her popularity. But yeah. um, and from the heart, too, let's be honest. Absolutely. <laughs> but like I was, Christie or any of those Yeah, people. I was enthralled by this stuff. The Adventurous Four was one of the first books I remember being captivated by. But seeing the comic strip tear strips literally off that yeah. was fantastic. to do was uncover mm -hmm. the covert racism, sure. the, the um, conventions of the, the middle class mm -hmm. that are really ludicrous. Um, well, people yeah. are suspicious in that send-up because they yeah. look Mediterranean, not even something like <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. He's up to no good, I'll be bound. You know? yeah. but, and also the, uh, the gender stuff. Mm. You know? Oh, yeah, 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 of course. You know, um, Why do you have to be such a girl? Exactly. Rhubarb <laughs> tart. My favourite, with lashings of cream. You've had four helpings already, Dick. Thanks, Anne. You really are a proper little housewife. Not like George. She still thinks she's a boy. I think it's stupid being a girl. I wish I was a boy. Really, George? It's about time you gave up thinking you're as good as a boy. I mean, Anne is just a girl, but she doesn't mind, do you, Anne? Well, I absolutely do mind, actually. Steady on you two. The holes have only just started. You seem so grown up, Julian. Well, the, the sense of it is, is that it didn't take that far away from the source. You didn't have to change it that much. They, they really just sort of played it kind of as it was um, in Enid Blyton's world. And all you had to do was that and push it a little bit, a little tiny bit. Reminded me, just flipping the timeline way past, of um, when Tina Fey uh, did her send-up interviews with or uh, about Sarah Palin. She just used the direct um, interview quotes. That's all she had to do to make it funny. And that's what they were doing with Enid Blyton. And it, they weren't all very successful. I think maybe the six comic strips, there might be more. Yeah. Um, and Bad News is the other one because it's, it was famously before Spinal Tap and it's it's different. It's humor is different, but it's the same kind of thing. I quite it's... like bad news. Bad news is the heavy metal band That's right. <laughs> who can't quite agree that they're a heavy metal band. That's right. Right uh, about what you were saying before. Um, it's a valid question. I mean, don't get me wrong about that. But I think I think you're really starting out from uh, the wrong point of view because we're not basically a heavy metal band. Uh, we're a bit more subtle than that, aren't we, Colin? What? We're a bit more subtle than that. Yeah, we're subtle, but uh, basically, we're heavy metal, aren't we? Yeah, Colin's right, Tim. If we made a record, it'd be so heavy you couldn't get off the turntable. <laughs> yeah, look, I, I, know, I know that, I know, but I mean, what I'm saying is we're just not simple heavy metal, you know? I thought we were heavy metal. Yeah, I, know, I know we've got heavy roots, you know? And I mean, what I'm trying to say is that, is that we're trying to progress a bit, you know? We're trying to break a few barriers. Are we? Yeah. So that's where they came from, I guess, from that alternative scene. Mm. The distinctive thing about the young ones, though, I felt was that whereas uh, the comic strip was, you know, narrative 
based yes. and self-contained stories. Yeah, uh, the young ones had a much looser structure. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was pretty anarchic. Yeah. You would have, you know, things that you'd recognise from a sitcom, uh, but situations exaggerated, raised to the nth degree. But the situation would be interrupted by various things. They would cut, for example, to, you know, animated figures. Yes. You know, they'd, so if someone threw a piece of cheese over their shoulder, they'd cut to the mice running after the she- cheese and having a chat, which mm. sometimes related to what went before, but sometimes didn't. Yeah. Alexi Sale, another comic associated with that, Crowd just into his stand-up. Yeah, he just comes in. Sometimes he comes in as a character, like the landlord. Mm. Uh, the uh, endless Bolovsky family. That's right. Uh, so he just goes off on all these weird uh, tangents, mm. had a very kind of aggressive mm. persona. Yeah. And um, I always loved the references to communism. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that's, that's one how of, he grew up. And yeah. he made that a, lot, a large part of his act. Even when he was, um, I'll just very small sidebar here at the other end of the 80s he had a show called stuff which was just absurdism and there was almost no politics in it at all which was it was it was sort of python-esque rather than anything else which i thought was interesting because he was like um well i can't do that anymore that that's the old shtick but it was necessary in the era of rock against racism concerts and things like that for him to be very political and that's a very large part of his career which he was then injecting really artificially into the young ones. I'm not really foreign, you know. I just do it to appear more sophisticated. I mean, nobody'd buy Evian water if it was called Blackburn water, would they? Nobody'd wear kicker boots if they were made in Scunthorpe. Abba, Abba, Swedish. I knew them when they were a Lancashire clog dancing trio. But Betty, Boris and Angela. Solzhenitsyn, Solzhenitsyn, a former pipe fitter welder from Allegates! And they would also have bands. So I saw bands like Nine Below Zero, Madness. Um, Zulu, Rip Rig and Panic. Right, and often for the first time. Mm-hmm. And um, that was another fantastic aspect of the show. It had this, I think, quite consciously variety feel about it. And I mm. think there was a logistic reason for well, that. that's true, yeah. Funding is interesting because if you were a variety show, you would get more money. So it enabled them to have higher production values. And there were lots of, you know, there was a slapstick element to the show. So things were blowing up and, you know, that cost a little bit of money. So having the bands on the show subsidized that to some extent. Yeah, of course, yeah. Um, because indeed, um, the the run of the show, the way it was written was um, people would just really kind of write sketches and they would shoehorn that into the, the general narrative. So Mayor and Mail yeah. might do something here and then Ben Alton, who was the other major writer, would do his stuff and he would write alone, not in the team. And they would, I, I read somewhere that they would often end up with things that would be 90 minutes long if they were shot as so they just had to do edit you know triage style and get it so you get these these 25 minutes of television which are really blisteringly anarchic so you get uh, a wall being blown up as you're just suggesting then and the next scene it wasn't like that yeah or pointedly it was so there was a hole from the bomb that was you know people kept on falling through the hole where the nuclear bomb had fallen yeah and that's what I mean by, you know, this sense of kind of frenetic anarchic energy uh, coupled with this surrealist sensibility where you could cut from one thing to another without worrying about continuity. There mm. didn't have to be a direct link. That's right. And I think all of those things really appealed to young people, um, certainly appealed to me and my crowd. Mm-hmm, definitely. I'm not sure how successful the young ones were beyond the university and kind of alt scene. Probably Probably nowhere. It's, it's like the it's like talking about rock arena and um, pairing that. The ABC brilliantly paired that on the same night. So I, let's pretend we know it was Tuesday night. Um, young ones, then rock arena. So that, that was a good one and a half hours of television for that crew, and it just served them, served us. But I can't imagine anyone forty and above at in the early eighties 
it's, oh, this is too much, you know. I know my sister, who'd been in uh, theatre sport like um, uh, acts and was interested in that kind of um, rapid idea-rich theatre, it was too much for her. She couldn't watch it. She, I, she kind of liked the idea of it. And she was a big Python fan, for example, but that was just, you know, one step beyond. <laughs> to quote Max. You know. How do you think it's held up? One of the points we've, we made, I think, in the very first podcast was that often art is very limited in terms of its impact to its time. It mm. often doesn't travel very well. So viewing the young ones today, mm -hmm. um, were you as engaged, as enthusiastic as you were when you were young? Well, I don't know. Um, it's hard to say for me and probably for you as well because we remember the enthusiasm we had for it at the time and that's got to carry. But I think what I've noticed, and I didn't go through all 12 episodes, I saw maybe eight and some of them, the problems are not in, uh, are not related to it being in the first half of the 80s. They're related to just poor pacing. Like the, the summer holiday, the last episode is, is a trial to get through. Do not watch it if you're hungover. Because it, it, it's the longest half hour you've ever sat through. Nothing happens. And for a lot of it, it's really very conventional sitcom, them uh, insulting each other in the back garden. And you think, oh. um, Because you remember the episodes like Nasty about the videos and things like that. The, the more concentrated and the more anarchic it is, that's... That, really strikes me as timeless, the way that a, a better episode of the old Monty Python TV series does, which, um, which will stand up, but not all of them will, because there's, they, really have some, they really have some pacing problems and also some non-gelling ideas clashing together, which just make for fairly painful viewing. And of course, we're taking this out of context because we both revisited this in a, a video on demand thing where we can we can binge it if we watch if we want to or just go for one per night or whatever we've got the control over that we're not waiting for the next episode and have that sort of little bit of gratitude for oh it's a new young ones thing you know? yeah that's an important point because um, we time shift we can choose to watch what we want when we want back in the 80s that was not a possibility VHS video aside if you wanted to see something on television, you had to show up at a particular time. Mm. And one of the interesting things about that mode of uh, consuming television was that it was more communal. Not only did I watch the young ones with housemates, yeah. but I could be sure that my entire circle was all watching at the same time That's a good as point. well. Yeah, it's, it was very much a, 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 in, in a community that uh, I'm sure there were badges of Rick and Vivian and people like that you could put on your lapel. And posters. Yeah, and they yeah. actually came out and they did their stand-up shows. Right. Um, yeah. They toured Australia in the 1980s and I saw, uh, certainly saw Ben Elton and Rick Mayle yeah. uh, in Perth. I, I have very fond memories of the young ones, mm. but watching it was a chore. It, okay. it was really... There were moments where I, I did... Um, Do you mean watching it then or now? Watching it now, okay. yeah. Back then, I, I just thought it was brilliant. Yeah, because I you're watching, was... watching by yourself. Or that's true, that's yeah. another difference. It, it, it's very different, because I, I don't think I ever watched it by myself. Yeah, no, I never did. It, I, it was always you know, something that my household would do together. Uh, but watching it in order to remind myself mm. about what I liked about it was a unsettling experience, because like you, I thought, yeah, that, the pacing's off, well, that's yeah. not funny, or... Yeah. You know, let's raise people's army and mm. bring down the edifice of capitalism. Yeah. <laughs> well, he does. He does. It's not a bad joke because he says, I've just had a revolutionary idea. Yeah. And he literally, you know, yeah. spouts a revolutionary idea. Um, but yeah, it, it doesn't all work. But I don't think it's because it's, it's uh, tied to a kind of a cachet you know, socio-political cachet of the early 80s. There's a lot of that that's identifiable about that in the way the characters look, the way that other characters look, um, the way that the, the police are depicted. And the point you were making about the element of the reaction against the convention, conventions of uh, British TV comedy of the time, um, uh, cauterizing 
the casual racism of it, cauterizing the sexism of it, um, admitting that they're kind of all pretty much virginal and they don't have, you know. That was hilarious. And that, that I loved those moments, like the party episode, for example. The tampons, yeah. That's right. Uh, because Rick uh, grabs a girl's uh, handbag and he goes through it and he finds some tampons. He doesn't know no, what a tampon is. He thinks it's a mouse. It's a ta- <laughs> like there's a whole like tube of them and we just, the way they're packaged. And um, there's always a telescope. And a telescope full of little mouse. And then there's that other episode where he wakes up next to a woman. <laughs> and then he, he, he uh, goes into a communal area and he says, I've got two cups of coffee. <laughs> He tries to get the mask. Oh, wow. That's that's one of the strongest ones. Yeah. Um, Even down to the point where uh, there's that running gag of him fighting with Vivian, who's saying, you're a virgin. Rick, you bloody liar. (laughs) You said you'd done it to her. He said he'd done it to you. (laughs) There's obviously been some ghastly (laughs) misunderstanding. Rick is still a virgin. There's this one bit where Rick says, well, well, if I'm a virgin, how do I know what a girl's bottom looks like? And Vivian says, well, you've looked at it your own in the mirror. And he says, oh, bam! <laughs> <laughs> you can't get anything past And of course, it. the antithesis of Rick is the worldly, smarmy Mike, yeah. uh, who I never took to, could never quite get mm. him as a character. Yeah. You know, the kind of cockney wise guy. I just didn't like the way he looked. I, I, yeah. I know everyone says it's like cool Mike, but to me, he was... Uncool. I but, just hated but that. But he, he refers to himself as cool. Yeah. And he's the only character out of the four that the others seem to respect because they don't respect each other apart from Mike. They even sort of call him Michael on some things. But no, he's, he has... It's hard to accept him if you're looking at the other ones as being akin to yourself or at least figures that you know. He's the one that's, that's hard to reconcile because you probably wouldn't at that time. This is probably a temporal related thing um, related to anyone like that, you know, who voted conservative and who seemed to be, he's like his three piece suits that he wears. Um, Someone who's headed for the stock exchange or to be in business as an entrepreneur or whatever, because he's always trying to scam something. Uh, Without that slight leavening of his occasional wisecracks, he'd be despicable. Despicable is in not and not funny like cartoon villain despicable, just horrifying. Yeah, you know, there's this oh god, you 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 whip this piece of human filth over here who sees a, a pound in in everything he comes across and doesn't really do anything to alleviate any other problems they're having. Um, you know, for all of Rick's posturing, at least he's kind of on the right track. You know, but Mike, he's that big shadowy figure that void in the middle of it and he's not just a straight guy he doesn't feed them lines that they you know he's not a traditional straight guy in any case maybe he was a different attempt at one uh but the reactions are happening around him and he's just like commenting on them he's an unsettling presence and he also was not part of that comedy scene that spawned the others anyway so yeah he he was cast in that role um, just before we leave the young ones, what about the idea that the young ones encapsulated some of the spirit that we associate with punk music, post-punk music? Mm-hmm. Do you think that's a valid observation? or to... Well, in the sense of it being a critique, yes. Um, but I think there's, there's more that you get out of pointing the, to the coincidence of the two things. Um, I think the anarchic uh, irreverence to conventional culture, yeah, that's, that comes out of the, the culture that was. But remember, this is, this is the early 80s, and, and punk was a, a dead thing by that stage. No one, well, no one called themselves a punk band in 77, but no one would have dreamt of doing it. Punk was being assumed by and absorbed by the world of advertising at that stage. Penelope Keith, speaking of her, did a whole series of, I think, Heinz Soup commercials. And this is towards 87, because I remember who was commenting on that. 
And she was serving up this like uh, chunky broth with vegetables or whatever like that to her nephew who had a mohawk. And the whole tagline of the ad was chunky for a punky. That seemed naff then. Um, but and and there was an ad for the Commonwealth Bank where this sixty-year-old bloke bank manager with his suit has you know multicolored mohawk as well. It was well, actually another little sidebar. The only people who were calling themselves punk then was very much an underground of of bands you know, into oi and things like that. That sort of fascist end of it, or that really hard rock end of it, which I guess. No, I'm not gonna not gonna pronounce on that. I just had no idea about it. But they were there. They struck me as kind of you know sad revivalists. But you know, it was a living, vibrant scene. But that was the only thing that was remotely like punk, even the spirit of punk. The by the time the young ones came around in the early '80s, it was just the assumption was that things would be uh, criticised that way and satirised in a way that they hadn't really been for the previous decade but I, I'm I think we need to be cautious about just using the, the yeah language. I mean to me it seems that there's always a rebellious streak or there has been perhaps until relatively recently there's always been a rebellious streak in youth culture and it's not just in music I mean we see you know if, if we go back as far as the early 20th century we have the Dadaists and the mm. surrealists mm who are similarly railing against convention. Uh, if you've ever seen um, clips of Dada cabarets, it has this kind of anarchic energy to it, which in many ways is very similar to what happened in the 70s and then sure. even you know, uh, the 90s. Yeah. Uh, and you can go further back in history. I think even in Greek, antiqui even sure. in Greek antiquity, there are... Um, commentaries about how badly behaved and anarchic the youth are and they mm -hmm. need to be tamed. So I think, yes, it's probably not an idea that holds um, mm -hmm. up when you, you examine it too closely. Mm -hmm. uh, but that said, I do think that um, that sense of um, anarchy is, is something that... Um, we're sort of missing a little bit today. Mm. I'm not sure there are a lot of... So mentioning that, um, what's their legacy? I mean, like, do you think... Yeah, it's a funny one, isn't it? Because uh, you didn't get a string of young one clones that followed that. Uh, the ones that I can think of that have similar ancestry and a similar kind of sensibility are all kind of more controlled... Like I'm thinking Black Adder, uh, Red Dwarf, definitely. Um, Alexis Sales' stuff is kind of like that, but it's it's a more gentle, um, satirical absurdism. And then you get uh, French and Saunders who were part of the cast of The Young Ones uh, with the very similarly irreverent Absolutely Fabulous, which is like 90s maybe? Yeah. Early 90s. Yeah. Um, but it, they're definite ancestors, or like descendants, of big pardon. Um, <clears throat> You don't get a big revolution in in sitcoms, I guess, because that writes the book and it it seals it. Um, but it's interesting, isn't it? Because I don't because in Australia you're still getting things like Hey Dad, yeah, you know, which is it's like punk, like punk never happened, you know, like the yeah. young ones never happened. Why do you think the young ones resonated so strongly in Australia? Interesting question. I think because we have. Uh, more of a natural bridge culturally than the Americans would to things British. I mean, I grew up um, watching, uh, looking forward to the school holidays when I was a, a kid because you'd have some British mystery show on. I loved them. I loved the atmosphere, but I also um, felt it felt natural. Yeah, kind of natural to me. I mean, I'm Russian background, but uh, I grew up as an English speaking Australian. And it felt far more natural than Starsky and Hutch or something like that. I mean, they had their own, you know, Blitzkrieg-style infiltration. Not just that show, but American culture. But I took always more to British things because they felt a little closer to what Australian was, I suppose. 
I think also because it's uh, uh, something I mentioned before. Um, the young ones lived like Australian students lived in share houses. An American one, I'm not sure what they would do with that, because, but there's that whole tradition. But I, I, I really am talking through my hat here. Do American students live on campus? They're always depicted as doing so. That's always. right. It's, it's far more of a dormitory yeah. situation, isn't it? I'm not sure. I mean, I do notice, I mean, I know for a fact, having spent time in America and amongst American students at university, that there are share houses okay. and people do share houses, particularly the immigrant students. Okay. So the first time I went to Los Angeles, I was living in a share house with Indian students. But whether Americans um, do that to the extent that people do it in Britain and Australia, I'm not sure. But I suspect it might have something to do with it. You go away mm. to university and you generally go away yeah. to yeah. live in on-campus accommodation. Whereas here, you go to the university that's closest to you generally. I yeah. mean, I moved towns to go to a different university, yeah. but um, uh, it's it's the main thing, it's the expected thing, if you're a student, you'll live as a student with other students in a rented house. And they are the, the commentary on that kind of student, especially with all male households. I've only ever lived in one all-male household and only for about a year. And that was when the young ones was actually introduced to, and I was I was past being a student. It was eighty four, so I finished my BA. Um, my brother Stephen was still a student, but we were the relation was basically the same thing, and there were some pretty clearly clear uh, parallels between the young ones characters and us and almost every other house. Yeah. My first share house was an all male house, the okay. only one. Yeah. And it was so grubby and awful that um, yeah, I never repeated the experience. No one does the dishes, no one cleans <laughs> up, you know, absolutely. You've been listening to Ushers to Ashes, a podcast about the other 80s. We enjoyed talking about the young ones so much that we've had to split this episode into two parts. Next time, we're going to have a look at Australian comedy in the 1980s. Let's just say it's going to be amazing. <laughs> <laughs>